Hello and welcome to 488. That's right, episode 488 of Holy Crap It's Sports. I'm your host, Pete Davis. A lovely 70 degree Friday fall day. That's the first real full day of fall, September 23rd of 2022, and it's gotten off to a great start. We got all kinds of good stuff to talk about today, mostly college football and some Braves and stuff, so we'll get right to it. If you want to follow me on Twitter, go to Pete Davis one If you want to write me, PeteDavis1 at Yahoo.com. If you'd like to be a patron of the show, if you like the show, uh, just go to Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, look up Holy Graphic Sports, just appreciate it, whatever you feel like. And also, if you want a t-shirt, Holy Graphic Sports t-shirt or Drink Up Shriners or anything you want. Uh, they have it right there at farmhouseprintingco.com. It's a local company here in Sonoya, Georgia. So you can call them or write them or just drive down there, Sonoya, Georgia. It's farmhouseprintingco.com for all your T-shirts and tumblers and coffee mugs and business cards, whatever you need. They can print it up for you with laser engraving, by the way. So headlines for Friday, September 23rd of 2022. The Braves look tired. In fact, one uh, website says they're in a rut as the regular season winds down with another close loss. And the book on Mike Soroka's 2022 season is officially over. College football news, LSU gets a slap on the wrist. What a surprise. And there's calling it a bomb threat. Then there's this. Kirk Herbstreit proves once again what a humorless doofus he can be. The Celtics suspend their dog coach. Uh, but, of course, it's racial. It's racial. Uh, one of John Wooden's star players has passed away. And DraftKings has a new feature to help you win your fantasy league. It just depends on how far you're willing to go. Pete's tweets, this day in sports history, birthdays you share with these reprobates, whatever. We got it for you coming up right now at Holy Crap at Sports. Braves lose another one-run game, this time shut out one nothing in Philadelphia Thursday night. They squandered chance after chance to try and catch up with the Mets or at least cut into the lead. Uh, the bats look really tired right now. They just can't seem to score in bunches like they were not too long ago. Once again, Max Freed gets very little support. He's stuck on 13 wins. And I'm really worried that this summer-long chase of the Mets is just taking too much out of them mentally and physically. At this point, I wouldn't mind if they rest some players and just get ready for the postseason and not make winning the division the number one priority. It would be nice. It would help. But do you really want this to be 1993 again where you lose to the Phillies in the postseason when you just had nothing left? Ronald Acuna Jr. was a late scratch from the lineup last night. He had a sore mid-back. And Travis Darno replaced Matt Olson as cleanup hitter. Olson was dropped down just one spot to fifth. To no avail, they couldn't score again. And they just frankly look, well, they said it's in a rut. And more bad news, if you've been wondering why you haven't heard anything new about Mike Soroka's rehab lately, wonder no more. Soroka had been rehabbing in the minors after twice tearing his Achilles tendon. He will now go on the injured list. He's got elbow soreness, and there's no structural damage in the elbow, so that's good news there. Uh, Mike took some big steps in the last few weeks, pitching fairly well at numerous levels of the minor leagues. It's all about him staying healthy and assuming the elbow soreness is nothing more than rust. It seems he's on the right track for next year. It'll be interesting to see how the Braves handle Soroka's arbitration this winter. He's eligible for it once again. It is worth pointing out he will have gone more than three years since making consistent starts on the mound. Soroka earned $2.8 million this past year and figures to make 3 to $4 million next season. I say he's worth it. I say roll the dice. If you're able to get this guy back and he gets over this Achilles stuff and the elbow soreness is nothing, 
you've got a pretty damn good major league pitcher. Remember, he was the ace uh, the Braves had three years ago until he hurt himself. So got that going for him, which is nice. All right, what are we drinking today? Let me think about this. Let's go ahead and let's go deep into the closet and pull out a Bartles and James wine cooler. Ah, I liked Bartles and James wine coolers. I'm sorry. I did. Uh, I also liked Seagram's, and I really like California Cooler, which I don't think you could get here on the East Coast, but I don't think they make it anymore either. Man, that was good stuff, that California Cooler. Anyway, uh, what are we talking about? College football. Let's get into that. James Craig, that's C-R-E-G-G, the former Louisiana State offensive line coach who was fired in June of 2021, uh, violated NCAA recruiting dead period rules in 2020 by having close contact with a prospect and his family, providing impermissible benefits. Of course, now they probably give him a medal for the NIL stuff. So here's what the NCAA has announced against uh, both Craig and LSU. One-year probation. Oh, that's horrible. A $5,000 fine, which was self-imposed. A limit of official visits for football to 55 during the 2022-23 academic year. Yeah, they have those down there at LSU. I'm not kidding. It's self-imposed again. A one-week prohibition against unofficial visits in the football program prior to the beginning of the 2022 academic year. Also self-imposed. A one-week prohibition against recruiting communications in the football program prior to the start of this academic year. Self-imposed. A reduction of seven evaluation days in the football program during the fall 2021 evaluation period. Self-imposed. And a three-year show-cause order for the former assistant coach. During that period, any NCAA member school employing him must restrict him from any off-campus recruiting activities unless it shows cause why the restrictions should not apply. In other words, the NCAA basically did nothing. Basically did nothing. And isn't that always a shock that the Alabamas and the, you know, the LSUs always seem to skate on these things while it's the Mississippi States and the Ole Misses and the South Carolinas that get hammered? Isn't that, isn't that weird how that always seems to happen? Of course, I guess we can imagine anything happening these days with the NCAA uh, as impotent and deballed as they have been. They might as well just tie a rubber band around their testes. And anyway, uh, so once again, LSU skates and nothing, nothing bad happens to them. Uh, police say a Utah student threatened to detonate a nuclear reactor on the campus if the school's football team did not beat San Diego State last Saturday. Now, first of all, uh, the Aztecs aren't that good this year, so. Utah should have been able to beat them handily, which I believe they did. Uh, the student arrested uh, Wednesday after the Popo said that she, that's right, it's a she, posted threats of violence on the Yik Yak social media app before the game. Okay, I'd never heard of Yik Yak, but here we are. The 21-year-old girl, uh, woman, wrote that, quote, if the football team did not win the game, she was going to detonate the nuclear reactor that is located in the University of Utah, causing a mass destruction, end quote. Now there's calling in a bomb threat, and then there's this. She was booked into the Salt Lake County Jail. She's being investigated for making what they're calling a threat of terrorism, I would say so. The student has, by the way, uh, knew what she was talking about. She has knowledge of the campus's nuclear reactor. She attends classes in the same building where it's located and is aware of its location. By the way, the Utes beat the Aztecs 35-7, to 7, so she didn't need to do that. And by the way, here in Atlanta, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but did you know that Georgia Tech has a nuclear reactor? 
Or at least they used to. I think they still do. Anyway, take a sip of the old Bartles and James. While you contemplate losing your life because a Georgia Tech student didn't win a bet. Anyway, Doug Ramsey, the COO of Beyond Meat, who's now world famous, the guy who punched and then bit the tip of the nose off another fan after the Arkansas game Saturday, has been suspended by his company. I mean, they were beyond meat. You cannot be biting people's faces. Uh, well, you got you know salt bath, bath salts or something. Salt bath, yeah, same thing. Salt bath, bath salt, same thing, Pete. Former Georgia wide receiver George Pickens, you got to see this, made a one-handed circus catch falling backwards for the Steelers last night during their loss in Cleveland. And I can tell you that Jacoby Brissett is playing very well for the Browns. So it's going to be interesting if they're in the playoff hunt and Deshaun Watson comes back. Uh, Speaking of Deshaun Watson, the NBA has a little uh, incident on their hand, which is kind of reminiscent. The Celtics have suspended horndog coach M.A. Udoka for the entire upcoming season for stooping a co-worker. It was consensual. That's what they're saying. So I don't know what the problem is here, but rules are rules. No word on what if anything will happen to the woman. Didn't she violate the team's rules too? Uh, They had a press conference at 11 o'clock this morning. I did not see it. But I did happen to catch first take with um, that uh, absolute loudmouth moron at times, Stephen A. Smith, who is threatening to run for president, by the way. Yeah, see Michael Avenatti. But anyway, uh, and he's doing this whole thing about he's mad at the Celtics. He's mad at the Celtics for exposing this. He, in Stephen A.'s world, M.A. Udoka should have been allowed to just step aside so he could be hired by another team. And the Celtics should not have mentioned why he was fired. Let me get this straight. In the age of Deshaun Watson, an NBA team is going to let go a first-year coach that took them to the finals and not tell you why they're letting him go or letting him walk. And another organization, is just, especially in the woke NBA, is going to hire said coach without any idea why the Celtics just fired him even though the rumors are bounding that it was of a sexual nature. I don't think that's going to happen, Stevie. I don't think that's going to happen at all. So, but he's mad at the Celtics. And I'm thinking the whole time, there's got to be something more why he's mad. There's got to be something more. And then he dropped it at the very end of his rant. As a black man. So there we have it. See, he's mad that the Boston Celtics, who have a history of, you know, in some ways, at least Boston, of being pro-white, uh, Celtics, you know, have had two, at least two or three black coaches. But anyway, uh, he's mad because the Celtics uh, exposed this guy's personal things out in the public. First of all, once he broke the team's rules, it was no longer personal. It was the team's decision to say what it was. And they needed to say what it was because if they had hidden a sexual case in 2022, all hell would have broken loose and the media would have kept digging and digging and digging. So it's awful naive of Stephen A to think that this could be buried and the guy could go just go get a job somewhere else. That's ridiculous. But of course, Stephen A had to bring race into the situation when I have no clue if it's had anything racial to it or not. It doesn't sound like it does. But anyway, that's Stephen A. NFL News, former Saints head coach Sean Payton says he's open to returning to coaching if the right job opens up. Like, say, I don't know, Dallas. And by the way, Jerry Jones says he wants, he begs, 
for a quarterback controversy. He wants Cooper Rush to press Dak Prescott, he said, because that means we're winning. We're winning without Dak. Hmm. I want a quarterback controversy, too. I want one here in Atlanta. Uh, the Browns won at home over the Steelers last night, but Amazon color analyst Kirk Herbstreet is no fan of the Brownies' new-slash-old mascot, Brownie the Elf, who adorns the center of the field these days. Brownie was the mascot of the team back in the 1940s and 50s when they actually won a lot of titles, so the fans voted to bring him back. <clears throat> they had a choice, the old helmet, uh, a dog for the dog pound, which I thought was going to win, and Brownie, which I didn't think had a chance. Well, Brownie won. But Herb Street, who actually grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and should know better, feigned ignorance of the history of the elf, so Al Michaels educated him, and Al jumped right in and goes, you're kidding, you don't know why? And it was pretty funny. I like Al sometimes will just treat the co-host like an idiot, which he should. <clears throat> College basketball news, some sad news here. Greg Lee who helped UCLA to consecutive national championships in 1972 and 73 as a starting guard under coach Joe, Joe, John Wooden, has passed away. Greg Lee was 70. He died at a San Diego hospital Wednesday from an infection related to an immune disorder. Lee was the starting guard on the varsity team as a sophomore back in 71-72 alongside Bill Walton and Jamal Wilkes. The Bruins was that 30-0 record. Uh, they won uh, by an average margin of over 30 points a game. They beat Florida State 81-76 in the title game. The following season, the Bruins again went 30-0, won the national championship 87-66 over Memphis State. He played a bit, Greg Lee did, for the Trailblazers, then embarked on a pro beach volleyball career, which was very successful. Then he was a math teacher at Claremont High School up in the high desert of San Diego, coaching basketball and tennis. So very successful life. And leaves behind his family as well. By the way, is there any more? This isn't really sports related, but since it uses sports sometimes, I'm going to mention it. Is there any more disgusting and troubling commercial on television right now than those State Farm ads where some hairy douche nozzle beta male, uh, probably with a man bun, gets in the face of Jake from State Farm and then smells his own beard? He goes, I like to smell my own beard, especially after a good meal. <sighs> And then he does this big sniff after he shoves the beard in his face. I'm telling you right now, if someone came up to me and shoved their beard in my face and took a big sniff out of it, he'd be hospitalized. Hospitalized. It just makes me want to puke every time. I want to set fire to the, the guy. I know he's just an actor. I want to set fire to him, starting with the beard. I'm going to have to have a drink after that. Have you seen the damn thing? Who, who approved that ad? Let's have some really douche nozzle beta male get in the face of jake from state farm and start smelling his beard oh the fuck are they thinking about on madison avenue these days uh that someone had to approve that imagine that anyway speaking of approval this could uh, help you win some money with DraftKings, according to the onion Touting the offering as a path to even bigger winnings from daily fantasy football picks, sports gambling app DraftKings unveiled a new premium feature this week that lets you, the user, select players who will have their legs broken by goons. 
gain an edge over the competition by picking a starting running back for our official DraftKings thugs to take care of the locker room before the game and then reap the benefits when his backup, whom you've smartly put money on, rises to a starting role, said DraftKings CEO Jason Robbins, demonstrating to reporters how the app could be used to select up to one quarterback, two running backs, two receivers, and a tight end who would then have their kneecaps smashed, ribs kicked in, or fingers broken by goons. For a fee, DraftKings will dispatch men armed with lead pipes and burlap sacks filled with nickels to locker rooms of your choice and put certain players out of commission. Then you can beat out your competitors when your picks have an unexpectedly great game, unexpected to everyone but you, that is. We understand our users want to make bets they feel strongly about, and with our humble service, DraftKings will make your desired outcome, shall we say, a little more certain. In related news, competitor sports gambling app FanDuel has reportedly been working with the NFL on a bounty program that would let users select players to injure other players during games. So this could actually help here. Now, let's do something I've been saving for a while. A gentleman by the name of Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South wrote this uh, two or three weeks ago, and I've been saving this during college football season because he breaks down in a, an amazing way what happened five years ago. It says, every time a college football team fires a coach and hires a new one, hope springs eternal or for just the first recruiting cycle. So in 2017, there was a banner year for firings and hirings. And Mr. O'Gara of SDS has taken a look at what happened five seasons ago because it pertains to what's happening now and what's about to happen at places like Arizona State and Nebraska and others as well. If you recall, 12 different Power 5 programs made head coaching hires following the 17th season. That number is 13 if you include Matt Luke shedding his interim tag and getting the full-time gig in wake of the Hugh Freeze fallout at Ole Miss. In case you forgot, here's a look at the Power 5 gigs following the 2017 season. You have Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M. He's new. Scott Frost at Nebraska. Dan Mullen, Florida. Chip Kelly, UCLA. Willie Taggart of Florida State. Kevin Sumlin, Arizona. Jonathan Smith, Oregon State. Herm Edwards, Arizona State. Joe Moorhead of Mississippi State. Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. Chad Morris at Arkansas. Mario Cristobal at Oregon. And Matt Luke at Ole Miss. Of those 13 head coaches, only Fisher, Frost, Kelly, Edwards, and Smith were currently at their respective schools to start this season. As of right now, only Fisher, Kelly, and Smith are because Frost and Edwards have already been fired. Only five of the 13 reached year five. Only three of those 13 uh, are even close to getting to year six. By the way, the power just went off, but I got this little device here that hopefully will keep it going. Uh, until we finish if it does if it goes off that means the battery ran out but that's okay we've got most of the show done anyway so two of the remaining five coaches or i should say three frost and edwards enter year five firmly on the hot seat and they got fired while kelly's seat cooled after a late 2021 push fisher will get a year six because a&m isn't about to fork over 86 million dollars to fire him at season's end now remember this article was written before a&m lost to app state at home okay Uh, Let's see. Smith is quietly one of the -the on-the-rise coaches after he led the Beavers to the first winning record in the Pac-12 since 2012. Cristobal is the outlier here because he's the only one of those 13 coaches who decided to leave for another Power 5 job, as in without getting fired first. So it begs the question... 
how many of these fan bases will actually speak positively about their 2017 hires. I'd say at least one, Smith, and you could debate Fisher, Cristobal, and Kelly. Even if Oregon fans appreciated Crystal Ball while he was in Eugene, I'd hardly argue a top 15 season and a post-year four exit to Coral Gables would be considered a unanimous success, especially on the heels of Taggart's one and done. Of those 13 Power 5 coaches from the 17th cycle, six of them were gone by the end of year three, including four, Taggart, Moorhead, Morris, and Luke, who didn't coach in the 2020s. Instead, they got hefty buyouts after their short stints before offset money was factored in. Moorhead got $7 million, Luke $9.6, Morris $10 million, and Taggart $18 million. Including Mullen, uh, who went to ESPN, got $12 million, and Sumlin got seven. The fire coaches from that group of 13 were owed a combined $63.6 million in buyouts. That's not including the $12.6 million that Pruitt would have earned if he was fired without cause, nor does it factor in the offset money in those contracts. This is unbelievable that so many of them were fired and were getting paid. Agar says he'll go to his grave saying that Moorhead deserved more time than two years at MSU. Uh, no. <laughs> but he said he ate some crow for saying that Moorhead would be a home run and that he would win 10 regular season games in year one. Okay, I don't know. He must have been in the mushrooms. The guy was from Penn State. The reason uh, Matt Luke got fired is that Moorhead, who was from Penn State, was out recruiting Matt Luke in the state of Mississippi, which is impossible, but it was happening. Um, Let's see, Tennessee got its notice of allegations from the NCAA. A coup to get Pruitt fired without paying that $12.6 million buyout resulted in the NCAA uncovering 18 level one violations, which was more than the 16 games he won during his three years in Knoxville. Uh, it was the worst SEC hire of the 21st century, according to some people. Uh, it wasn't even the worst SEC hire of the cycle, though, according to Connor O'Gara. Why? Because Arkansas agreed to pay Chad Morris $18 million for two years of work in which he failed to win an SEC game. That's hard to top. At the time, though, nobody would have seen an ending like that. Bill Bender, who does great work for Sporting News, ranked all the hires in the 2017 cycle. In terms of just the Power 5 moves, here's what his ranking was back in 2017. Number one, Jimbo Fisher. Number two, Scott Frost. Er, number three, Chip Kelly. Number four, Dan Mullen, earned. Number five, Kevin Sumlin, earned. Number six, Willie Taggart, earned. Number seven, Jeremy Pruitt, earned. Number eight, Chad Morris, earned. Number nine, Joe Moorhead, earned. Number 10, Mario Cristobal. Well, he's at Miami now. Uh, number 11, Jonathan Smith. Number 12, Matt Luke, earned. And number 13, Herm Edwards at Arizona State. Now, I'm going to give uh, Bill some credit here. In a cycle that ended up being loaded with turnover, his top three at least all still at their respective schools for now. Well, that was written before Scott Frost was fired. Fisher ended up being the correct pick almost by default. Uh, uh, ask the Aggies fans now if they believe that. The fact that he got over the Nick Saban hurdle and signed the highest rating recruiting class of the 21st century suggests his best years could be forthcoming. Mm -hmm. He might not have gotten A&M to Atlanta yet, but in 2020, he led A&M to its best AP poll finish since 1939, which has to count for something. 
Uh, personally, Ogara's 2017 ranking would have had Moorhead at least in the top five and perhaps even higher. He, too, would have been low on Cristobal, a.k.a. the guy who was fired at FIU and was an in-house promotion after Taggart bolted for FSU after one season. Remember, Cristobal was once fired by Florida International not too long ago. It seems only fair that uh, we examine the 2017 cycle with some revisionist history based on the way these uh, nearly last five years have played out. So here's a re-ranking of the 2017 cycle based on the way the coaches actually fared over the last five years. Number one, Fisher of A&M. Number two, Cristobal of Oregon. Number three, Smith of Oregon State. Number four, Dan Mullen of Florida. Nope. Number five, Chip Kelly of UCLA, and uh, he's kind of on the seat out there. Number six, the fired Herm Edwards of Arizona State. Number seven, the fired Joe Moorhead of Mississippi State. The Number eight, Matt Luke fired at Ole Miss. Number nine, Scott Frost fired at Nebraska. Number 10, Jeremy Pruitt fired at Tennessee. Number 11, Willie Taggart fired at FSU. Number 12, Kevin Sumlin fired at Arizona. And dead last at number 13, Chad Morris fired at Arkansas. As coaching turnovers go, this is, out, this is amazing. Uh, how could three coaches be worse than Pruitt? So easily we forget that Pruitt at least delivered an eight-win season and had a winning record in SEC play in year two. Quite a turnaround after 2017, the dumpster fire that included a winless SEC season in Knoxville and a fiasco of a coaching search that ended with Pruitt getting the job. He was bad at cheating, and he bungled Tennessee's quarterback room in horrific fashion, but the Vols at least won a Florida bowl game. If they escape his 18 level one violations without a bowl ban, I'd argue that the initial hire wasn't as bad as some made it out to be. It was just an awful extension. If Cristobal had stayed at Oregon instead of leaving for his alma mater, he would have been at number one. But part of revisionist history is examining what a coach did to elevate the program, and it's hard to say a guy leaving a proud program after four years made that job more appealing. That's why he had Smith ahead of Mullen. Sure, Smith might have not won multiple New Year's Six Bowl games like Mullen, but that wasn't the bar to meet at Oregon State. Mullen didn't elevate his program's talent level, and he ultimately failed to change the national reputation of the Gators with their never-ending post-Steve Spurrier era needed to find some stability at head coach. What's crazy is that you were ranking 2017 coaching cycle hires strictly based on wins. There's a pretty steep drop-off after Cristobal, Fisher, and Mullen. Number one beat Cristobal with 35 victories. Tied for second, Mullen and Fisher with 34. Uh, fourth was Edwards at 25. Kelly at 5 with 18. You have uh, Pruitt and Smith tied at number 6 with 16 wins. Frost had 15. Moore had 14. Taggart and Luke had 9. Sumlin had 9. And Morris only had 4. A pandemic-shortened 2020 season impacted those totals. Still, Cristobal, the only coach in that group to win a conference title. Those 13 coaches earned a combined two top-five finishes and just eight AP top-25 finishes. Nobody in their right mind would have predicted that kind of turnout for the 2017 coaching cycle. And to be fair, there were some solid group of five hires mixed in, like Billy Napier, Josh Heupel, and Sonny Dykes, all of whom have since moved on to Power 5 programs. But as a whole, the 17 coaching cycle was wildly disappointing. Consider that a reason why it's unlikely the 2021 cycle will meet our high expectations. Those expectations are high because there were vacancies at eight programs who played for a national title in the 21st century. Oklahoma, LSU, Notre Dame, USC, Oregon, Florida, Virginia Tech, and Miami. 
History tells that tells us between Cristobal, Napier, Kelly, Brian Kelly, Brent Venables, Marcus Freeman, Dan Lanning, Brent Pry, and Lincoln Riley, not everyone will be a home run hire. Some will be whiffs. Others will make solid contact, and a few will knock it out of the park. Program prestige does not guarantee success, and neither does a promising year one. I will go on record saying right now that this group that's just been hired last year will be far better than the ones hired back in 2017. That's just my opinion. The 2017 cycle should forever serve as a cautionary tale. Even the obvious moves like Frost returning to his alma mater, as great a story as that was, wasn't necessarily destined for success. This sport doesn't care who you are or what you've done. Anyone can be chewed up and spit out. Sometimes all it takes is too much faith in a quarterback. Frost with Adrian Martinez, who's played there for 20 years and now he's moved on to another team. Or too much faith in a coordinator, Mullen with Todd Grantham. Sometimes the rebuild is too much, Taggart at FSU. Or the previous success was overvalued, Morris having one good year at Southern Methodist. It's much easier to talk ourselves into hires than not because we assume that everyone will learn from the mistakes of their predecessors. In reality, we never truly know how a hire will turn out. All we can do is look back. It's not too early to look back on the 2017 cycle and come to a consensus conclusion. It was one giant swing and a miss. That's what Connor O'Gara of Saturday Down South wrote uh, about a month or so ago before the season started, before Scott Frost and Herm Edwards were fired. So if you want to go, I, you can probably find it in their archives and look at because I didn't give you the whole article. But it's a very interesting article at that. All right, let's do on this day, September 23rd in sports history. In 1868, uh, British Open men's golf at Prestwick, Tom Morris Jr. beat his dad, Tom Morris Sr., by three strokes. Uh, at 17, young Morris remains the youngest Open champion. 1926, upset of the decade. Gene Tunney defeats defending champion Jack Dempsey, 10-round unanimous decision in Philadelphia, later known as JFK Stadium, for the world heavyweight boxing title. 1952, undefeated Rocky Marciano KOs defending champ Jersey Joe Walcott in the 13th round at Municipal Stadium in Philly for the world heavyweight boxing title. 1992, first female to play in an NHL exhibition game was Manon Réaume, a goalie for the Tampa Bay Lightning. She gave up two goals on nine attempts in one period. She first came up playing for the, gosh, was it the Atlanta Knights that she played for? And I went to a press conference. You talk about radiantly beautiful. That I hope no pucks ever hit her in the face. She was just beautiful. in that French accent, I mean, we were all melting. We literally, all of us melted as soon as she started talking. Anyway, uh, 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump withdraws the invitation to the White House for the NBA champs Golden State Warriors after Stephon Curry says, I don't want to go. Uh, 2018 Tour Championship Men's Golf at Eastlake here in Atlanta. Tiger Woods won by two strokes over Billy Horschel. It was his 80th Tour win, but the first in five years. Uh, Justin Rose won the FedEx Cup crown with a $10 million bonus. Remember when we thought $10 million was a lot of money for these golfers? Birthday, September 23rd. Is it the 23rd? Yeah. Uh, 1887, Alfieri Maserati. Uh, what a name. Alfieri Maserati. Italian auto racer and engineer, he established Maserati Racing, born in Voghera, Italy, died in 1932. In 1930, Don Edmonds was born. He was an auto racer and car builder. 
He's in the Hall of Fame with the National Sprint Car people. He built Evil Knievel Snake River Canyon Sky Cycle, which was nothing but a huge bottle rocket. Uh, Edmonds was born in Santa Ana, California. He died a couple years ago. 1939, Henry Blofeld, English cricket commentator and arch nemesis of Bond, James Bond. Blofeld? Anyway. Uh, let's see, September 23rd, 1943. Marty Schottenheimer uh, coached the Browns and the Chiefs. NFL Coach of the Year in 04 for the San Diego Chargers. Born in Cannonsburg, Pennsylvania, died last year. Poor Marty could never get over the hump and win the big one. Uh, 1957, one of the great names of football, Tunch Ilkin. That's right, Tunch Ilkin. Offensive tackle, pro bowler back in the 80s for the Steelers. Broadcaster, uh, born in Istanbul, Turkey. He um, passed away last year. 1958, Larry Mize won the U.S. Masters in 1987, born in Augusta, (laughs) hometown boy. 1958, on the same day, Marvin Lewis. Marvin, coach of the, uh, let's see, Bengals from 2003 to 2018, should have been fired years before he was, born in McDonald, Pennsylvania. 1962, another great coach, John Harbaugh, won a Super Bowl in 12 for the Ravens, uh, born in Toledo, Ohio. They have here that he's no longer the head coach of the Ravens, and that's not true. 1966, Pete Harnish, a pitcher for Orioles, Mets, Astros, born in Comac, New York. 1969, Jeff Cirillo, infielder for the Brewers, born in Pasadena, California. 1984, former Brave Matt Kemp, played mainly for the Dodgers. He was a three-time All-Star, two-time Gold Glover for the Dodgers and four other teams, born in Midwest City, Oklahoma. And in 1985, Joppa Chamberlain played for the Yankees. A baseball player was born. Uh, let's take a sip of the Bartles and James. <laughs> Dead People, September 23rd, 1975. Renee Thomas, French auto racer, won the Indianapolis 500 in 1914, died at the age of 89. 1994, Jerry Barber. Uh, won the PGA Championship in 61, died of mitral valve prolapse and a stroke at 78. 1997, we lost Abe Gibron, head coach of the Bears. He was a big dude. He looked like a Bears coach, dead at the age of 72. And in 2000, Aurelio Rodriguez. He was a Mexican Major League Baseball player, I think mainly third base for the Tigers. Very good, very good player, born in 1947. 2020, we lost Gail Sayers, one of the, my favorite Oh, my dad and uncle used to talk about this guy. Uh, he was a little before my time, but I watched him on film. College and Pro Football Hall of Fame halfback, four-time Pro Bowler, two-time NFL rushing leader for the Bears, source for the TV movie Brian's Song, uh, played by Billy D. Williams, died from dementia and Alzheimer's disease. He was 77. And, of course, Brian Piccolo in the movie was played by James Kahn in the real one, not that uh, one they did a few years ago. Time for a little Pete's Tweets here. Look at up old Pete's tweets. I don't know if you're watching Georgia State lose at home to Coastal Carolina last night. By the way, ESPN, thanks for sending the D team. You know, those announcers do their best, and they try to do a good job. But it's kind of bad when ESPN, the, the production crew, doesn't have their sound turned up, their mics on. When the Chiron on the bottom of the screen keeps messing with the, the play, where you can't see the end of a play because the Chiron is telling you who won a high school football game in Wyoming somewhere. Or, you know, just complete screw-ups of where the camera was and whatever. It was just the D team. Thanks. But anyway, a funny scene in there last night where there was a fumble, and the referee 
the referee recovered the fumble. If you look at the end of it, when all the players get up, the ref is on his hands and knees holding the football like a bulldog under one arm and looking right and left like someone coming for my ball. Uh, the guy was kind of weird, actually. Uh, Jeff Hollinger posted this on 11 Alive yesterday, and it's for yesterday. Uh, the 22nd of September. Today is the 79th birth anniversary of the great late Falcons middle linebacker Tommy Nobis. Excuse me for being repetitive on this issue. It's unbelievable Mr. Nobis has not been enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It would seem a Falcons organization lobby, not just a letter, could rectify this awful and unjust slight. Not Tommy's fault he played for a wretched expansion franchise. In 2022, number 60 is mostly forgotten, which is truly sad. Uh, Chuck Daddle, uh, local uh, guy here, uh, sports guy for decades, says the great Don Shula, winning his coach in NFL history, once told me point blank about Nobis, nobody has ever been better. Canton has no legitimacy in my eyes until Nobis is rightfully enshrined. I agree. I, I don't care what problems Tommy Nobis had at the end of his life. Tommy Nobis belongs in the Hall of Fame, in the NFL Hall of Fame. And it's because he's an Atlanta Falcon that he's being screwed. Because uh, the league doesn't give a flying you-know-what about the Atlanta Falcons, and they never have. And, and uh, Jeff put this uh, photo of uh, Sports Illustrated, October of 1966, I believe, where it had Tommy Nobis as the uh, best defending defender in college football. And it was true. Uh, let's see. I was flicking around yesterday, and they're showing some highlights. Highlights, <laughs> if you can say that, of the Queen's funeral. And there was a little baby in the crowd watching the retinue pass by the procession. And I'm not kidding. The kid was this spitting image of Winston, Sir Winston Churchill. And I'm thinking, they're in good hands. Sir Winston has been reincarnated. He's got the lip pout. The lower lip is to the side, like you know, like the bulldog look that Churchill had. He's got the look in his face, like, when is this gonna end? You know, where's my champagne? Where's my rum? Where's my whiskey? My brandy? He drank all those every day, by the way. All right. Speaking of drinking, all right. Let's get to uh, this day in baseball history, September twenty-third of nineteen oh five. Uh, Detroit's loss to Washington. 18-year-old Tiger rookie outfielder Ty Cobb hit a three-run homer off Washington's Cy Falkenberg and inside the park round tripper, the first of 117 homers that Georgia Peach will hit. 1908, when Fred Merkel fails to touch second base after an apparent game-winning hit, scoring McCormick from third cost the Giants a 2-1 win over the Cubs with the umpire calling him out and ruling the game a tie. The play was dubbed Merkel's boner, will eventually cost the Giants the flag. 1916, allowing one walk during a twin bill with the Reds, Grover Cleveland Alexander of the Phillies wins both ends of the doubleheader 7-3-4-0 to establish the National League record. The future Hall of Famer repeats the feat September 3, 1917 against the Brooklyn Robins at Ebbets Field. September 23, 1947, before the game against the Giants in a sold-out Ebbets Field, the Dodgers staged Jackie Robinson Day. The Brooklyn rookie endured much of grief this season as the game's first black player in modern times is touched when his teammates crowd around home plate to participate in the ceremony. 1948, the Braves clinched the National League flag by defeating the Giants 3-2. They will finish six and a half games ahead of the Dodgers. Two days before the season is over, though, the Braves will lose their best hitter, outfielder Jeff Heath, who breaks his ankle sliding home against Brooklyn two days before the season ends, and they'd already wrapped up the pennant. 
Now, that's interesting because in 1948, the Braves lost in a contested series with the Cleveland Indians. I think maybe the Braves of Boston would have won that series if Jeff Heath had played, which would have meant that the Cleveland Indians would not have won, the Guardians now, a World Series since 1920, which means they'd be in their 102nd year, almost Cub-like, of not winning. And by the way, that 1920 World Series was the last time two teams that had never won a World Series faced off until 1980, when you had Kansas City uh, losing to Philadelphia in uh, 1980. 1949, with the Indians eliminated from the pennant race, this is the next year now, team owner Bill Veck and a few players serving as pallbearers hold a funeral service for the 1948 pennant. They use a horse-drawn hearse to take the casket containing the 14-by-20-foot flag for burial behind the center field fence at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium. It has since disappeared, causing some superstitious fans to believe the missing pennant explains why the tribe hasn't won a World Series since then. 1956, Ozzie Virgil, who will see his son Ozzie catch in the big leagues for the Braves, became the first Dominican to play in the majors. Now think about this, all the Dominicans that play now. I think it's outside of the United States, the Dominican Republic has the most players playing. Uh, the 23-year-old Monte Cristi native plays third base for the Phillies. Uh, September 23, 1957, the Braves clinched the National League pennant, defeating the Cards 4-2, thanks to Hank Aaron's 11th inning homer. Milwaukee's accomplishment marks the first time since 1950 that a New York team, Dodgers or Giants, had not finished first in the National League. And they called it Bushville wins. They called him Milwaukee Bushville. 1962, L.A. Dodgers shortstop Maury Wills, who passed away this week, broke Ty Cobb's 1915 steal record, uh, recording number 97 on his way to 104. 1969, exactly one year after the manager suffered a heart attack, the Mets give Gil Hodges a reason to relax a bit when they clinch a tie for the NL East, beating the Cardinals. Uh, Bud Harrelson, 11th inning walk-off single off Bob Gibson. Before the Shea Stadium victory, Linton Bishop Jr., the skipper's cardiologist, had sent him a telegram that read, Happy to see you're number one. Hope your team does as well as your heart. Of course, Gil Hodges would later die of a heart attack. And his wife just passed away this week. The same day in 1969, the Braves move into first place in the West by pounding the Astros 10-2. to George Stone is the winner over Jim Bouton, who was writing his book. 1977, Reds outfitter George Foster became the 10th major leaguer to hit 50 homers in the season, the first since Willie Mays in 1965. The National League's eventual MVP will finish with 52, hit the blast off Buzz Capra with two outs in the ninth inning, and the team's win over the Braves at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Let's see, 1978 on this date, September 23rd. Sad, sad, sad. While riding as a passenger in a car, Lyman Ballstock is killed by the estranged husband of Barbara Smith, who mistakenly shoots the 27-year-old Angels outfielder in the right temple while attempting to murder his wife. After the first trial results in a hung jury, Leonard Smith, the perp, is found not guilty by reason of insanity, serves only seven months, uh, prompting the Indian legislature to change the state's laws regarding insanity. He was a good player. Played for Boston and California. 1979, in a 10-inning Cardinals victory over New York, Lou Brock stole his 938th and final base to surpass Billy Hamilton's mark established in the last century. In 1977, uh, Brock broke Ty Cobb's modern league record of 892 thefts. 
1983, uh, went over the team that traded him, Philly Southpaw Steve Carlton got his 300th victory. How sweet that must have been. He beat the Cardinals at Bush Stadium. 1987, Albert Hall, not Royal Albert Hall, but Albert Hall, needing a three-bagger to complete the cycle, hit a bases-empty two-out triple in the bottom of the ninth, will score the decisive run on Dave Smith's wild pitch, giving Atlanta a 5-4 walk-off victory over Houston. The 29-year-old outfitter is the first Braves player to hit for the cycle since 1910, 77 years earlier, when Bill Collins accomplished the rare feat. Sometimes the cough button works, and sometimes it doesn't, and that time it did not. Sorry about that. September 23rd, 1992, leadoff hitter Bip Roberts, one of the funniest guys I ever interviewed, tied the NL record with his 10th consecutive hit, a first-inning single, and the Reds win over L.A. Hmm. Uh, let's see, 1996, Atlanta beat the Expos 8-2 to clinch the National League East. The Bravos became the first National League team to take five straight division titles. 1998, with his team ahead 7-5 in the bottom of the ninth with the bases full of Brewers and two outs, <laughs> Cubs outfitter Brent Brown drops Jeff Jenkins' routine long fly ball to left field, allowing three runs to score and gave Milwaukee an 8-7 walk-off win at County Stadium. The infamous error will be immortalized, as you know if I played it a thousand times, by Ron Santos' radio call when the broadcaster mournfully exclaims, Oh, no! As the ball rolls toward the wall. Now, it says here, Ivy-covered wall. And they keep saying it was a walk-off at County Stadium. But I was watching that game, and to me, I think that was in Wrigley Field. And the Cubs could, didn't score in the bottom of the ninth. Why do I think that was Wrigley Field? But, and that, according to this, it kind of says that it, it was. I think it was. In 2000, surpassing the Major League team mark shared by the 97 Braves and the 99 Indians for grand slams in a season, Ben Greaves' seventh-inning home run with bases loaded gave the A's a record-breaking 13 grand slams. September 23, 2006, at Camden Yards, or uh, Orioles outfitter Jay Gibbons hit a foul ball straight back over the screen. It hits a fan in the rib cage. The fan was his wife, Laura. <laughs> oh, boy, he must have had fun when he went home. Uh, 2009, after signing him to a one-year contract extension for 2010, the Braves announced that Bobby Cox will retire as the Braves manager after the next season. The 68-year-old skipper had led the team to 14 consecutive postseason appearances and a world championship during his 24-year tenure in Atlanta. Thanks to Saturday Down South, ESPN, On This Day, National Pastime, SI.com, and everybody else that I named along the way here, helping me uh, put together this lovely show. Let me, in fact, uh, let me... Find if something's going on on Twitter right now for you before we head out the door do, 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 for this lovely weekend. 70-something degrees day. Sunshine is nice. In the 50s, I had to open the windows last night. It was nice. Uh, no, 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 no. Not seeing. Um, don't have terribly time to go over the college football schedule over the weekend. You know it by now. Okay, doesn't seem like a lot's going on uh, this morning, sports-wise, outside of the Celtics doing what they're doing. Who cares at this point? Uh, let's see. ESPN, we'll do a headline or two here. Um, no, no, that's not, no, 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 uh, no, 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 no. This is interesting. Uh, the betting line, if Southern Cal, Oregon State, 
An outlier opening line on Southern Cal Oregon State has prompted a flood of bets on the underdog Beavers. Uh, Caesar Sportsbook opened Southern Cal as a 13.5 point favorite. Minutes later, oddsmakers at Circus Sports put the Trojans as only a 5 point favorite. So bettors have pounced on this. So this is interesting. Huh. Uh, wow. Uh, college uh, Caesar Sportsbook guy Joey Fiesel says, We had a high opinion of USC. We wanted to put a number out to attract Beaver's money, and it worked. <laughs> well, you always want that Beaver money. Who doesn't need that? Anyway, everybody have a great uh, weekend. Uh, get your t shirts at farmhouseprintingco.com. Stay safe, drink responsibly, uh, drink up Shriners, but do it responsibly. And uh, hotty toddy. I think we got the Golden Hurricane of Tulsa or some golden horde or golden something uh, going on this week. So anyway, everybody have a good weekend. See ya.